Hello, everyone. A very quick one from me. It would be a massive help to us with our ambition to help as many recruiters as possible achieve their goals and also inspire the next generation to choose recruitment as a career if you hit that follow and subscribe button. If you're someone that prefers to learn in a visual way, we've also recently invested a lot in our video podcast experience. So in the show notes, you'll always be able to find the link to watch the video on our YouTube channel and make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. Thank you so much for supporting the show and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. I'm your host, Isha Mazuz, and on this week's episode, I was joined by the founders of Plexus, Sean and Zeth. We actually sat down on the podcast just over three years ago, nearly three years ago exactly, when there was 13 people in the business and there were around 1 million GP as a business. So why I was so excited to sit back down with them was they've been on an interesting journey since. There's now just over 30 of them. They've broken the 4 million GP mark. And we really sat down and discussed how they've gone about that, how they've cultivated their culture, how they've built you know, their leadership team, the processes that they've invested in internally to scale uh, and what the plans are for the future. There's so many things that we learned here from building a successful delivery function, from uh, how to incentivize a delivery function, how to build future leaders, and so much more. I think for anyone that has aspirations to scale their recruitment business, for anyone that finds themselves always leveling out at 10 heads, 15 heads, 20 heads, this is going to be really insightful for you if you really want to break past that barrier and get to 30 plus. Enjoy the episode. Sean Zeff, welcome back to the podcast. Yes. Hello. Hello. Bit different? <laughs> it is. This is high level. You've upped your game big time. Obviously, why I want to sit down with you guys, there's a few people that, yeah, really, hopefully at some point we'll be able to get, sit back down with. I think people are always curious about hearing people's stories on the podcast and then them talking about where they want to go and then finding out if they actually got there. Yeah. And put you guys in that category. So obviously when we sat down, uh, it was in your old Waterloo office. I think we just had like a meeting room, didn't we? Yeah, it was a bad office. Yeah, no, it wasn't that bad. It was all right. It was all right. I okay. thought it was all right. Obviously, you're now in, uh, <laughs> I've been to an obviously office in London Bridge, which I think is mega. Yeah. But I know funny. you're looking at another office now. We are. Um, so yeah, just really excited to ultimately unpack the last three years. So just to frame it up for everyone and... Sean, if I get anything wrong, tell me. Okay, we can correct people. So when we last sat down, which was uh, April 2020, there was 13 of you in the business. I think you was coming towards the end of your third year in business and, and the main goal that you had was to break the million GP mark, which you did. You did 1.05, which we were just talking about before this, in your third year of business. And then the financial year just gone, you ended on 4.6 GP, 4.6 million GP. So obviously over the last three years, that's what we've got up to. And there's just over uh, 30 of you in the business now. And then again, correct me if I'm wrong, the year just gone, you did around 90% perm, 10% contract. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yep. And then when I was listening back to the podcast, you did way more contract before, right? Yeah. What was the split then when we last sat down, do you think? Because it, it was many contracts, I felt like you yeah, said to it was, me. Yeah, it was, it was probably about 60-40 to contract. Really? Okay, cool. 
Right, so let, we'll, we'll talk about that. So purpose of this, and for everyone listening, we're going to talk about this journey which you've gone on. A lot of recruitment companies that I speak to struggle to break the ceilings of 15, 20 people, get past that. It's a really difficult period, and you've been in the thick of this, and I know that you're trying to push this on again now. So that's what we're going to break down. But I guess just to kickstart this, Sean, I'm going to come to you first. Would love just to hear your take, because this might have changed or evolved just with how the market's been, the different people that we have in the industry now or entering the industry. Like, what do you believe are the common characteristics and traits that successful recruiters possess in today's market or have to possess in today's market? Yeah. So I think when we spoke last time, I think uh, I mentioned that I think resilience is is always one of the most important things like good recruiters can have. I think that's evolved a little bit. I think these days, like it's a combination of skill set and mindset, really. And you know, you can you can try and train and develop both, but I, I guess mindset is probably more like inherent to somebody's personality a little bit. I think that's the two most important things. If you especially for us, like we try to combine that with market knowledge. That's a big thing for us. I think if you can put those three things together, then you, you should be a pretty successful recruiter. Love that, Zeph, what we're saying. Just similar to Sean, I'd probably say like likability. Mm. I think, you know, you're in sales. I think you, as a salesperson, I always say good salespeople don't sound like they're selling. And half of that, I think, is being likable and trustworthy. Mm. I think like the resilience and the work ethic, I think goes without saying. But I think if you're likable and engaging and you'll come across as more trustworthy, and generally I think you'll probably do better. Yeah, fair. So I think what would also be useful for people then, so we were just talking a bit about what both of you, in terms of what you've ended up focusing on, what your responsibilities have been between you. I think that would just be useful framing for people. So again, if I get anything this wrong, let me know. But we put down, so Zeph, you found yourself over the, I don't know what period this is, maybe the last 12 months, last six months, I don't know. But for you, you'll find yourself more managing, like being in more of like a sales manager, managing the 360 function and very much more on the sales floor. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's fair, yeah. I'm sure there's other things you're doing, but yeah. And then, Sean, you, you're the ops guy, mate. <laughs> yeah. Not I'm, by I'm, choice. No. <laughs> the reluctant ops guy, yeah. The reluctant <laughs> uh, uh, ops guy. So, so let, let's just first, like, either of you can share with me, but fair to say you guys committed to the crypto space. Mm. Uh, have you continued to commit to it over the last three years? Because when I was listening back to the podcast, I think, Zeph, you were saying... Like, yeah, we've always done this, but we like the idea of having different pillars, if that's cloud, if it's architecture, whatever. So, but I feel like outside looking in, uh, when I think of you guys, I think you guys as one of the sort of early people that really committed to that blockchain crypto space. And as I'm sure you guys will be more aware than me, I think more and more people have, have popped up right to focus on that. But over the last three years, is it fair to say that most of your business or all of your business, you just focused on that being your niche? Yes, yeah, so it's all crypto now. Okay. Like, I think... We realised that because we got in so early, it was a really, really not particularly competitive market. So it was, it was just us. The market was tiny. And we always thought this market's going to go somewhere. But it's it has cycles in the same way that traditional markets have cycles, except the cycles are infinitely more aggressive. <laughs> and I think when we spoke to you last, like we were still in like a pretty heavy bear market. And there was like a lot less than this bear market. So mm. I think if you look at maybe market caps of crypto, I think back then it was maybe three, maybe two, three hundred billion. Mm. Now in, in the pit of a bear market, it's 1.4 trillion. So mm. it's it's a huge market. It's, it's probably at the point where it's, and I don't want to curse it and stuff, but too, probably too big to fail now. Yeah. And so it doesn't make sense for us to like spread ourselves so thin. Like we mm. go all in on crypto, everyone does crypto, and then we can dominate the market or have a larger market share because we have so many people all focusing on the same 
goal in the same market and stuff. So we're all crypto. I think longer term, do we look at maybe other brands? Possibly. I think the short term goal is to like grow and grow in crypto. And what, how would you describe the market currently then? Yeah, the markets, the markets, I mean, our crypto bear market or downturn started way before like the traditional economy got hit. And so it's been probably last May was probably when it started to, to drop and drop pretty aggressively. And when it mm. drops, like clients panic. And what does that actually look like in the recruitment sense? Is that, Seth, we, we planned on hiring, no, yeah. not doing any of that anymore. Yeah, We're yeah, letting yeah. people go. What does that actually look like? It, look, it looks like an absolutely rammed jobs board, just like, <laughs> just etching off one after the other. I mean, this, like, I mean, don't get me wrong, this, there's still plenty out there. I, yeah. say, I say to a lot of our guys, I think the crypto market is, when it was crazy, it was super crazy. And I think when it's in a bear market like this, there's still jobs. You just have to like mm. work harder to find them. Like it's, it's there's still very much a market, and then the guys still do like quite a bit of business and stuff. So, you know, I think a lot of people compare it to traditional tech markets, but most of our guys, because they're graduates, have only ever worked in a crypto recruitment job, mm. so they don't know what it's like working in other markets. And what what's the current story? And um, we're telling the people like, oh, like keep working through this, and there's it just goes through cycles, or like there are still success stories in a bear market. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's no it's no different from like a traditional tech company. Like there'll be people who are doing really really well in the bear market. Some of my best years before Plexus were in bear markets or bad markets in mm. in tech, and so you can just apply that same logic to to crypto. It's yeah. just more aggressive. Okay. I think so, what we found last time was like 2018-19, like that sort of bear market period, it was like, it was dead. Mm. Like it was it was pretty dead. Whereas now there's like, within, because crypto is kind of mature, there's little pockets of interest a lot of the time. So whilst overall it might be like the market might have softened a little bit, there's there's little sort of pockets of interest around like different layer twos that are popping up or maybe like NFTs are hot for a period mm. or stuff like that. So if you're good, then you, you're, you're still able to find like little opportunities within that, even in like quite a maybe a slightly quieter market than it was before. And then either of you chip in on this, but I think it could be really easy for anyone in your business and anyone that maybe you potentially interview just to be really sucked into like all the negativity, like online, the news, because I do feel like that's on like steroids with crypto, I feel like almost Mm. just because I don't know, there's just so much to it in terms of how many sort of, of like whatever you want to call it, the old guard traditional infrastructure, are all still very much against it or like there's just so much more to it. Whereas I think if you're in a, a typical market right now, whether that be a tech market or just different markets, there's still some negativity, but it's probably a bit more easier to just focus on the things that you can control and not let all of that infiltrate like your, your uh, mindset. How have you gone about protecting that for the guys or helping people that because i feel like it yeah they could just be full of negativity all the time and just say yeah crypto's tanked it's done i don't know because i feel like it's way more intense those people generally don't apply to work for us i guess (laughs) (laughs) most of the people that we have in for interviews are like pretty excited about the space they're pretty interested in it like some more so than others Mm. Um, but you guys must be more on it though in terms because I feel like I always like to look at when I interview people what they've been posting online and stuff like that if there's things that I can get them to talk about but I think Sean when I was looking at your content like you're always talking about just market commentary mm. so I feel like with your space you, you've probably had to continue to be probably an extra 25-30% more doing that with your team than maybe if you was in like a typical engineering market I, I just feel I don't know I might mm. be wrong I don't know if you've how you've communicated to the team like this is what we're hearing this is what's going on you've had to really over communicate that because they could all very easily go yeah the, we're done mm. I think yeah it's I don't know it's not really a challenge we've had is it, uh, it is, I, I mean, mean I, so because people invest in crypto and you mm. can make money 
there's a lot of people who are interested in it. And so naturally it gets a lot of clicks when you post about it. So there mm. just is more news about it. Like mm. there isn't mainstream news about the new version of Python or something like mm. that. Like people just aren't that interested. Whereas if you've invested in something, you're interested. So there's a constant like cycle of stuff that's coming through. And so when you work in an office and there's like 30 people and we're all working in the same sector, generally people talk about it anyway. Mm. And so it's not like you're in like just this media echo chamber where everything's amazing and then, oh my God, everything's tanking, it's the worst and stuff. It's more just a, it's just it's just a market and we're all talking about it and it just continues to to roll on irrespective of like really, really great news or really, really bad right, news. Yeah, okay, nice. So Sean, let me come to you on this then. I want to know, let's just start with what have been the, the three biggest mistakes you guys have made since over the last three years? <laughs> Business-wise, uh, <laughs> whatever, like talk to us. What's been the three biggest mistakes? I think, and it's kind of annoying because we kind of saw it happening through the period. Of, there's, a, there's a period, and, and this is not just crypto. This is like the wider tech recruitment in general, mm. I think. Like over the last couple of years, uh, maybe up to sort of six, nine months ago, like the market was super, super buoyant and, and recruitment companies doing really, really well. Everybody's making lots of money. I think our standards were slipping in that period. Mm. And it's really hard when you like look at a sales team, you, you know, you've got people who have only ever known one market. So they've, they've only ever known good times they, and they come into that and it's like, great, really easy to pull jobs. Like there's loads of interest in the space, easy to fill them, great fees. Like this is easy, mm. like no problem, you know, rock up, uh, you know, to work at nine o'clock in the morning, chip off at sort of half five, six and just, you know, and, and just, and have a laugh and great, happy days. <laughs> like the recruitment that we knew as trainees was like, you're in early, you're on the tools, it's hard, you get a lot of rejection, you're working late and, you know, and not everybody kind of makes it, but when it was as good as it was, it's, it breeds complacency. Mm. And we knew for A, we were like, this is going to end. Like at some, this is not going to last forever, you know, like at some point the market's going to turn. We've already lived through like one crypto bear market. We knew it was going to, you know, impact the hiring and stuff. But like, it's so hard to like communicate that to people that they, they just, a lot of the time they have to live it themselves. So I think like, yeah, it's just trying to like get people out of that sort of complacency period, you know, and uh, yeah, that, that was probably tough. Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing that with so many people that I'm speaking to. Mm. Yeah, How's it wouldn't surprise me. I think it's, it's so difficult to try and enforce certain standards when everyone's doing deals and everyone's mm. doing well. And it's like, why are you on my back about yeah. this? And it's just, I think me and him knew, and we knew probably for maybe six, nine months, that like, it, like the standard just wasn't there. The, mm. like the quality of stuff we're doing just wasn't there. But it was just really hard to like create change when everyone was doing deals and everyone's making really good money and mm. stuff like that. But it doesn't surprise me here that other people are yeah, facing no, the same definitely. thing. So anything, obviously with these types of things, there's always learnings. I guess you won't know until you're in it, but I think it'd be helpful for people. Would you change how you tried to approach getting on people's backs or could you have communicated it in a different way? I don't know. Is there anything that you thought about that? Because I'm sure you'd be like, right, we want to make sure that we address this different next time. Yeah, it's difficult. We did try to address yeah, it as we well. Did. This is the we thing. Really did. Just like, we really just, did. So how did you yeah, try just like, How guys, did you try like, like, Shut up, man. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's fine. Really? Yeah, so what, so you tried to attempt it to be like, hey guys, we've been in the game long enough. We know this isn't going to last. Yeah. We need to make sure that we keep the quality up. I know you're smashing deals, you're hitting your targets but we need to really focus on quality and what they're going, I'm hitting my target. This podcast is proudly partnered with 1UpSales. So before we dive into our topic for the day, let's take a moment to talk about something crucial to any successful recruitment business. Engagement. When your recruitment consultants are engaged, they're more productive, more efficient, and simply better at what they do. But how do you boost engagement? Well, 
That is where OneUp Sales comes into play. This innovative sales performance management platform leverages the power of gamification to make work, not just work, but something exciting, competitive, and rewarding. We all know how competitive recruiters are, and it's delving into that, it's tapping into that. So with features like dynamic leaderboards, personalized competitions, and real-time analytics, OneUp Sales helps to motivate your team, pushing them to achieve their best. And with OneUp Sales, you're not just managing your team, you're inspiring them to greater heights. Engage your consultants, empower your business. Let's OneUp your agency. Because you listen to this podcast, you will get 10% off the user price forever. You're not getting this deal anywhere else. Click the show notes, check out the product, book in a conversation, And you're going to get your hands on an absolute game-changing piece of tech that's going to enable you to engage and motivate your recruitment teams. Now, let's get back to the episode. I think probably one thing, like we were pushing on performance, right? And I think we've generally always been pretty good in terms of like having a bit of an attitude of like, this is good, but we can do better. Mm. Uh, I think maybe a little bit more around like wider perception of like how our customers perceive us as opposed mm. to like just internal performance like that's a good insight yeah and, and like maybe like we have like an sla with our clients where we have a two-week turnaround so we basically try and promote that we will box your job off in five working days mm. and we say to you if we'll commit that to you you commit to doing all your interviews in five working days and so we could like i say to the guys I almost have like a conveyor belt mentality job in boxed job off mm. and then you just manage like that that interview process I think towards the end that slipped mm. because there was so much demand for talent and such a short supply of talent that clients were just jumping at like mm. candidates that weren't that great. And so people were effectively being given a pass on people who probably were not as good as we should be sending. And so I think in hindsight, maybe leaning more around how the clients and customers perceive us and likewise the candidates as well. Other than what Zeph and Sean was yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good insight. I think that's something that recruiters should be doing more of getting actual feedback mm. from their customers. Mm. What comes to mind, Zeph, anything for you then, second biggest mistake? I think, I mean, this is an obvious one, but you go through phases where you you start hiring a lot of people and you get into a viewpoint in terms of the sort of things that you're looking for. And those people maybe are good for recruitment, but they're not good for recruitment at Plexus. Mm. And I think knowing who you are as a company, what it is you're going to be asking people to come in and, and do, hiring based on your values and your culture, rather than just can they do the job? Like, are they are they good for the job type stuff? I think that's probably a mistake that we made, but maybe that wasn't more recent. That was quite a while back, but that was something we used yeah, to get wrong. The, the three years. Yeah. We're looking at the last three years. Yeah. I think we perhaps underestimated like the lead time and the planning around some of the non-sales hires. I think when it comes to hiring salespeople, we've been doing it for, you know, quite a while, a long time. And we're like, we know what we're looking for. We know what mm. works and what doesn't work. And we don't always get it right. But like, I, I guess from a percentage point of view, we're like... We're, we're relatively good at it. Like all the hiring of like non-salespeople, so like marketing and talent and operations <laughs> and those sorts of things, like it just takes like so much longer to find the quality of people that mm. we want. And I think mm. that's probably been a bit of a learning for Wait, us. Why do you think it? that is then? Is it because you're not sure is entirely on what you want or what good looks like? I think knowing what good looks like a lot of the time is... Mm. Yeah, um, is difficult. Like we brought in an interim CMO to help us out with the marketing stuff, and like, and his view on like what what good looks like from marketing is often you know like different from Mars. 
Mm. Obviously, he's right. We're wrong. Right, he's <laughs> yeah. the expert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So it's those types of things can can often take a, a longer time, or yeah, you end up massively. Maybe yeah, more often getting it wrong in line with what Zeph was saying. Maybe they don't add to the. Yeah. the culture in line with that. So let's talk about what a recruitment business looks like when it's double the size, it's generating a lot more revenue. Sean, what, what does the actual infrastructure look like or like what are you aiming for it to look like? Because I know there's still people that you're hiring for on these things. Because I know obviously you guys have aspirations to continue to scale and grow. So it'd be good just to hear your take on like how you sort of visualize that, how it currently looks. So what I'm asking is, yeah, what does the leadership layer look like? How many managers have you got compared to salespeople? When you say the non-salespeople, we're talking ops, we're talking marketing, internal. Mm. Talk to us a bit about how you're trying to set up Plexus or what it looks like today. And then also some of the seats that you think are really important to get to the, the next stage. Yeah, so like where we were maybe like a year or, or yeah, a year or two ago is that hierarchy super flat. Mm. Me and Zeth still on the tools, like still managing day to day, still individually training people and manage, managing salespeople. I'm sort of individually managing the sort of ops and finance and legal and all that sort of stuff as well. And we kind of had this like period, I guess, like sort of last summer, last sort of summer, last autumn time where it was like, right, we, we actually need more of a hierarchy. We need more structure here. Like we can't individually manage we can just about individually manage a business of about like 25 30 people but beyond that it's going to be crazy trying to do that with like 50 or 60 people so we've had to like implement like loads more structure around management for sales and non-sales our job now is i guess manage or trying to manage probably like seven or eight nine people something like that you know we don't want to be individually like managing every every single trainees and and i i guess our view now is like how can we build to really scale like really aggressively over the next year or so how can we go from the current sort of 30 odd people that we are to 60 next year to 100 the year after that or well, we have to put the the structure in place to do that now um so what uh, does that look like what does that structure look like how are you currently thinking about it it's difficult to say from a numbers point of view because we've always especially for like for salespeople, we really really want to hire we've hired a few seniors over the years but we really want to hire organically and train mm. people up and get people in the grads grad level and then and let them develop organically into into management because it gives the people you know the best opportunity to progress in the business so but because of that there's obviously a lead time on, on, on how people quickly becoming you can managers do, and leaders exactly, exactly right because you just need a bit of you need a bit of experience and we've, we've got people that been doing it sort of you know two or three years getting into that now for non-sales we've always been in the view that we want to hire really really high quality people we don't want an, an enormous kind of back office team or, mm. or anything like that so i think we probably want i guess five or six sort of really really high quality sort of senior people who are non-sales based and i'd include sort of l and d and talent so and what seats would they be then that. operations person yeah so like heads of operation yeah. heads of marketing heads of talent heads of l and d mm-hmm. things like that yeah. So that'd be like the non-sales. Yeah. And then how, obviously you said you implemented the hierarchy. Yeah. What, what does that actually look like? So I think you said to me, what you've got at the moment, you've got what, three, 360 managers and then one delivery manager. Is that how it is? Yeah, that's how it is at the moment. How are you thinking about that? Are you thinking, have you thought about, right, we're only going to aim to have five to six people to one manager or I don't know, how are you thinking about the hierarchy of the actual sales team? We're thinking that we're going to hire a lot of grads over the summer and there is a hell of a lot of work for those guys to do, quite honestly. Like they're going to they're gonna be given a, a lot of opportunity and they're great guys and they're going to 
rise to that, hopefully. I'm sure mm-hmm. they will. And hopefully the people that are in that kind of what we would call a kind of senior level, so like sort of 18 months, two years, hopefully those guys over the next year or so will progress to a point where we can sort of start looking at them for sort of junior management roles. I think like that billing management phase is is probably one of the hardest things you can do in recruitment. Like mm-hmm. I know certainly in my sort of first probably like, you know, year or, or so at that level, years and years ago, like it, I definitely struggled. It's really, really hard. So we really want to support those guys as much as possible. Not like, you know, completely wrap them in cotton wool, but like mm. it's like give them an, an, enough sort of support and help and stuff so, you know, they can develop and, and get better without it being completely overwhelming for them. I think you can probably sales manage up to, I guess, directly maybe sort of eight, ten people. I think beyond that, it's going to be it's going to be like pretty challenging, and you're going to struggle to do your own business on top of that. So, and what's top of mind to obviously these people are clearly absolutely fundamental and important to growing your business and getting to the scale you want to. I've lost count of the amount of recruitment owners that I've spoken to that know who those people are, but oftentimes leave. So how are we thinking about making sure those people that are clearly fundamental to your plans, how are we thinking about retaining them, making sure that they don't end up in a position where they've got more stress, they're earning less money? Mm. But how are you thinking about that? Because that's probably just as important. Yeah, I mean, I think just communication with them, like mm. just find out, like regularly checking in with them, like where, where are you at, how are you finding things, and making sure that they have a route to earning more money year on year if money's like the key driver for them. For a lot of them, it might be like opportunities like going and opening another office, but mm. making sure that that roadmap's clear to them. And if they're unhappy, I think Sean and I are generally pretty good at like saying to people, just tell us what you're thinking. Like mm. if there's an issue, I'm not guaranteeing I can solve it, but it's better that you communicate it so at least we both know sort of where we stand with stuff. So I think as long as people feel like they're heard and... Mm. They can affect change. I think that's the frustration for a lot of people. It, it's earnings, but it's also, am I able to affect change in my own environment? And if they can't, they're like, well, I'll just go to a new environment. Mm. I think that's, that's interesting. What do you think were some of the, like, as I said to you at the start of this, a lot of people struggle to get to where you guys are now. What were some of the biggest barriers or things that you've already mentioned that getting some of the non-sales people took longer than you anticipated? Was there any other barriers that you found just took a bit longer to get over than you anticipated, maybe on the sales side, or I don't know, was there anything else that... I'll tell you one thing I think that, and this maybe goes back to a mistake actually that we made, I don't think, or I think it took us too long to empower other people in the company to step up into these roles that they're now assuming. And a lot of the time they would wait for like guidance for us, rather than us empowering them to make the calls on stuff that they probably already knew how mm. we would react to stuff. And so that was probably something that we didn't do that we're now super hot on in terms of making sure that these people feel comfortable owning certain components of like the job, whether it be like culture or standards or doing some training and stuff like that. I think we're much better now at empowering people to do that. And was that because it was just a very flat and you had just become accustomed to doing things and saying, yeah, we do this or we do that, that's how we do that? I think it's like on us, as like with, with a lot of these sort of things, I think... We didn't communicate it to them, yeah. and so they just assumed that it wasn't for them to do that. I didn't mm. maybe want to like go above their their station or anything like that. And so when Sean was talking about it, it was a less of a flat structure. So it was basically just Sean and I managing those people. We're now trying to empower more people to sort of step up, and those people who are in those management roles are now in a position where they're starting to get people that are hopefully progressing into management. So they will effectively be moving into managing managers at some mm. point. And so that's how you can make it a bit more scalable. So when Sean said you can, you know, effectively manage 10 people, you can manage more people, but not directly because then you'll have seniors, principals, stuff within your team that are then taking ownership of other members of that effective cost cost center. Yeah. And was it difficult 
because I speak to a lot of recruitment companies who are at that stage and they'd probably describe themselves like you did in terms of we're on the tools or in the business, we're doing all that. Was that a difficult period for either of you? Obviously, Zeph, it sounds like you're a bit more still in that, leading by the front, you're, you're managing managers or helping inspire leaders, these things. But did either of you find it difficult to stop being that, the person who's on the tools, who's doing deals? Like, was that a difficult period or did you find that hard to do? When we set up, we always wanted to try and lead from the front a little bit to mm. set standards. And I, I think there's definitely a lot of recruitment managers I've seen over the years who have probably got off the tools a little bit too early. There's probably a, a, there's probably an, an equal share of people that have been on the tools too long. So mm. finding that like that that sort of sweet spot is quite tricky. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, has it, does anyone ever nail it? I don't know. How did you approach it? Was you like, right, did you just start handing over clients? Did you just slowly, but yeah, how did you actually... I think over time, most clients will, sometimes you'll have clients for years and years and years and years and years and you hope so, but like over time, some clients will sort of fade out. So I guess it's just around like the levels of BD that we do. I mean, me and Zeth haven't done any BD for years, like two or three mm. years, like a, a lot of it is just sort of existing relationships and stuff. But I guess now we're starting to pass newer stuff over or even some of the existing stuff over as well, just because from a time management perspective, we just don't have the... Mm. capacity to, to kind of do it i think we've set we've set a bar of standards which is like hopefully quite good and I hope, mm. hopefully something for people to aspire to i think that's enough i don't think you need to do it absolutely every single year and i think actually if we were to continue to try and do it every single year it would probably detract from what else we were doing especially when the market was good like we spent a lot of time just working in the business you know like the delivery guys were working you know quite heavily for us and you know there was a, a lot of business to be done that was great but the flip side of that is you know how much time did we think about like what's going on in people's heads you know mm. like speaking to other managers like working on the business you know how are people really feeling is everyone happy because they're just doing loads of deals or are there frustrations you know is there sort of stuff like under the surface and there were that we probably missed a little bit because we were kind yeah, of yeah. you know in it too much and I think just in terms of like the mechanics because I think I would have liked to have understood this better if I was three years ago I think basically the, the way that we did it and we made like errors along the way was to sort of phase it so like at the start it was obviously doing the billing management role effectively we were doing BD we were sourcing our own candidates we then started moving to a point where we only did like the BD and managing the client relationships right. and then to the point where we just didn't do BD and we just worked with, with clients we already had. And that way it was sort of like, it was a phased mm. lifting of responsibilities and that slowly fed time into being on the business and in the business. Yeah, that, that's helpful. And did you like communicate to people that's what you were doing? Or that yeah, I was pretty early on in terms of like working with delivery guys and then trying to upskill them in terms of rather than just doing a sourcing the candidates and managing the candidate profile, doing some like account management and stuff. And mm. like, they would come to me with, oh, well, I don't know what to do with this. I'm like, Ask, <laughs> go back, speak to the client. This is how you would frame it. And then they would do it and then they get more comfortable doing it. Mm. And then they're able to help upskill other people. And so they can do a true 270 role then. Got you. Curious, because when I was listening back to our last conversation, I sort of described you guys having a team of delivery consultants, something that I didn't hear a whole lot of but i'd say that's become super super popular particularly when obviously it was absolutely crazy how fundamental has the delivery team been for you to get to where you are now do you think this podcast is proudly sponsored by vincherry now what i wanted to ask all of you today is the following is your recruitment crm efficient is it helping or hindering your business development efforts here are the three biggest signs that your CRM is dragging you down. 
One, data's missing. Scan information and unsearchable candidates. Two, user adoption. No one likes using the system or worst, aren't using it at all. Three, accessibility. Your consultants are having a hard time locating the data and only a few know how the system works. If your CRM is not delivering value, don't settle. Your database is your biggest lever for growth. And because you listen to this episode, you will get 10% off the user price for Vincherry forever, for life, exclusively for all of you that listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already considered Vincherry, your CRM, if you feel like your CRM is letting you down, particularly in the time of need right now in acquiring clients, use the link in the show notes, get a discovery call booked in and see if it could be a good fit for your business. Now let's get back to the episode. Yeah, super important. Uh, like I've always said, it's like our, like the engine room. When the delivery team's firing, it frees up the 360 guys just to sort of focus on their own market. And so all the other stuff that they're generating on the side should get picked up by delivery. And I think mm. the upskilling of a delivery team makes an enormous difference to the quality of service you're able to give your clients because you're able to like stick to that five day turnaround on mm. CVs. And there are multiple points of contacts for clients. So if someone's on holiday, they already, or they're already dealing with a delivery consultant. So there's two points of contacts and stuff for someone to reach out to. So I think it's super important. Mm. So that was quite key. Let's break this down a bit. Cause I, th- I think this would be helpful for people. Cause like, I don't know how you're thinking about it. It's clearly been part of your business plan, like throughout the majority of the time. But I think particularly for recruitment companies that are smaller, when I've spoken to them over the last like three to six months, the idea of having people in the business that aren't capable of winning their own clients is just something that they don't feel overly great about. And I think every person I spoke to recently, recruiter-wise, who maybe has been, I don't know, let go, or if I'm speaking to a rec to rec and I'm saying, how, how are you finding the market? Most recruitment owners are going, yeah, we want people who have 360 experience. So you've done it for a lot of time, clearly learned a lot. So just firstly, so what is the actual split in your company right now in terms of the 360 team to delivery team? Like what, how many people in the 360 team compared to the delivery team? Probably a, a third, about about a third is delivery. This is something we battle with on yeah. a weekly basis. Yeah. What's that? This, the ratio of like how many delivery people you have to how many 360 So what's people? the current ratio then? It's about a third delivery, two thirds 360. So out of your entire like consultant sales force, whatever you call it, two, uh, one third of them is delivery. And then how have you set it up? And then I want to ask you questions on like, maybe if you were to start a delivery function tomorrow, how you'd approach it. Do they support the entire team, uh, yeah. the other two thirds? Yeah, they do. So the majority of the volume used to come from Sean and I and a couple of the senior guys, whereas now it's thrown open to pretty much any, any of the guys. So we, the delivery manager would effectively do a delivery meet with his team just to sort of check in, where are you at with your you're boxing off of this mm. job and that job. And he would then speak to, previously it would have been Sean and I, right. around like coordinating what, what the next wave of jobs looks like. But these days, Sean and I have tried to step back from that and said, reach out to the individual managers of the mm. 360 guys directly and find out, you know, what's the job flow like on their team. So it now runs autonomously without us. Okay. We were super involved in it. So let's just talk about this for a, for a second then. So I guess let me just start like if like knowing what you know now, if you were to start a delivery function from scratch tomorrow, what would the first 90 days look like? Okay, so like a similar business model to us in terms of hiring, just training. Just like, yeah, like just because I think this is something I think often grown recruitment companies think about, mm. but then they're worried about, are we going to have these people on quite high bases 
that aren't a capable of winning business. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's there's things that a lot of people are concerned or worried about. Okay. So I would get somebody who was your strongest person at delivering roles, right? So if you evaluate your whole business, who's the person that you know does a great job of like account managing and runs a super tight ship, like super tight process in terms of delivering against jobs? That person could, in theory, effectively head up that function. Okay. When you're hiring grads, those grads would then go into that function and this person would teach them the process. But that process needs to be tight. Like we used to have, people used to absolutely rinse me all the time because I used to have like sheets for everything. I'm like, look, this is, this is the process. Follow this process. Make it simple. Like so that people can follow and they're new to the job. That person would effectively upskill. So the sort of, sorry, just put cut in there. Sorry. So this, as in the process for when I give you a job, this is what you do. Yeah. So post it on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do this. All right. The actual process of step yeah, yeah. by step, what you do to source for a yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. So okay. like, and, and ideally, you don't even have to get through like you get the job covered off without having to go through like I don't know, looking at GitHub forks or weird right, yeah, yeah. shit like that. So it's like go on the database. Yeah. yeah. Search for this. Okay. Cool. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, cool. So put that in. Yeah. So they, they would effectively follow that process. That person would be effectively effectively the manager of that function and would teach new people, effectively trainees, whether it be grads or whatever. And generally these people, uh, it's not always the case, but the people who we've always found have done really well at delivery are those people who who take pride in like attention to detail and have a nice process and they like like structure and stuff like that. And Mm. generally those sort of people do quite well. So when you're hiring and stuff, we would often start interviewing and saying, "Mm, I think that person's really well suited to delivery because they seem to have that more sort of delivery mindset. So I would try and start thinking about that. When those people then join, they obviously join that, that delivery manager. That manager would basically be making sure that they were working at the same sort of standard as, as you were and just start drip feeding jobs in right over time particularly if you've got like a sales guy who's like super super good at generating jobs you know you have that that salesperson who just hates doing delivery they hate sourcing profiles if but they're really good at generating jobs we'll just let them do that and get some like delivery people just to start working those jobs in the background it then just becomes scalable from there because the more people that understand the process the easier other people will learn it just through osmosis Mm. proximity learning just being around those people Okay, cool. Right. A couple of questions then. Firstly, I know it will evolve over time, but how involved are they in the process? So do they source it, qualify the candidate, then hand it over? Do they do the qualification, interview prep? What does that look like? Yeah. So I think like when they first start, it's very much just a 90 degree. Yeah. So you basically just maybe source candidates and stuff. Those candidates would then go over to 360 person. That 360 person would probably still qualify that candidate and then manage that process. When they probably get to consultant, now they're doing a full 180 job. So in theory, no one talks to, like, or they're three, six person won't talk to the candidates. And they will still be involved in some of the client stuff, but maybe not the more difficult stuff. When they go to like senior principal level, they're probably at the level there where they can take specs and like effectively run a whole process outside of the initial generation. They wouldn't agree in terms. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't get the client on. Yeah. They would take an intake call do all that and then close candidates, all of that. Okay, cool. And then what does uh, good look like? What are some of the key metrics that you measure people against quite early on? Are you looking at, I don't know, CV to interview ratios? Like what are the sort of key metrics? So we push delivery on 10 CVs to clients like per week. So the CVs will go to the 360 consultant. They will either say, yeah, they're good or no, they're not. But I think we push them on 10 CVs per week. The thought process behind that is if they're doing 10 CVs per week, they're working two jobs per week. Mm-hmm. The SLA says five days, but we try and target the guy to do it in two and a half, or they know that it, maybe it rolls on, they work two at the same time, afternoon, yeah. to break it up a bit. And that would be 40 CVs per month. In theory, they work eight jobs. If they work eight jobs, they're probably going to be placing about three to four of them per month. Okay. Talk to me about, and then I know what people will think, oh, wait, I think you've broken that down really well. Thank you for sharing that. Commission, what are we saying? 
How have you structured that? It might have evolved over time. Because typically, I've found that when I speak to people, the 360 commission is better than the delivery commission. How have you done that? Because they're not bringing on the client. And how have you approached that? Mm. It's very topical, actually. Yeah, it is. Actually. We just we've <laughs> we not just changed. We're just not on change. I'll let Sean go through that if you want. So we originally we had a sort of flat fee structure, which wraps. So when Zeth's talking about like the consultant, senior consultant, principal consultant thing, like basically the more responsibility they have in as a delivery person, the higher commission they get per placement. Well, yeah. We had a lot of feedback over, um, I guess, like last summer and stuff around like some of the delivery people who are maybe um, a bit unhappy, and it's a bit of a weird one because actually, like you know, th- these are people that have probably been in recruitment for like a year or to or something like that and they're earning reasonable money you know they're earning sort of like 40 50 60k sometimes stuff like that and you know which at the the time they came in for an interview they probably would have been pretty happy with but the problem is that there was a huge discrepancy between the delivery guys and the 360 guys and you know we had 360 guys who were you know a handful of or, or a fair few of them who were only been in recruitment for you know like a couple of years two three years earning sort of you know 150 200 grand a year and, and because there's such a, mm. a difference between the two teams that was basically just like just pissing them off a little bit quite frankly so so we did a big like deep dive into it and changed the model a little bit to bring the two commissions a bit more in line basically split the value of the deals what we found our, our deal values average deal values have, have gone up just consistently really over mm. the years and when we originally designed the initial commission structure you know it was pretty good it was pretty fair to, to the delivery guys but what so we it found was a flat fee yeah and you could you know you can roughly work out as a percentage but it was, um, it was with an annual bonus as well yeah. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember you saying last yeah, time about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get an annual bonus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what we've seen is that the, the guys have been able to do some really, really good high value business, which is great. But obviously, with flat fee commission, then the delivery guys weren't seeing the upside on those deals. So mm. it, had, it had to change. Well, have you changed it to a percentage? Or? Yeah, changed percentage. Yeah, I mean, the exact percentage. But like, so what is that? Do they have you done it? So then what they get an agreed percentage of the overall annual salary, basically? Yeah, like you would do on so, that. so you just split the fee. So, so say the fee is 30 grand or whatever, then maybe 20, 30 percent whatever something like that might go to the delivery person and then the rest of it will be allocated towards the 360 person and then then that goes through our commission scheme right okay yeah so like the i get what you mean so there's basically you've just split the pot basically exactly yeah so based on the fee the percentage some percentage goes delivery the rest go to sort of 360 and on the average deal sizes it was it's probably about the same as what it was before but for the larger deals, they get actually they get the rewarded they, they for get that. the upside. Plus, they'll get the upside on the multiple deals as well, so that the the overperformers, the overachievers, will be more heavily rewarded, just like they would be on three hundred and sixty, because that wasn't really happening quite as much. Okay, so. yeah. They're also incentivized as well, and the same with the three hundred and sixty guys are to like bundle starters, so like to encourage like consistency. Obviously, the more stars you're going to have in a month, the higher up the commission banding you. Yeah, so you have like banding and Whereas stuff. before. It was just flat. So flat, it, it, right, it doesn't yeah. make a difference whether they had like an absolute knockout quarter and then did nothing the following yeah. quarter. How fundamental is the delivery function going to be to you getting to 60 heads? Yeah, as, I think as as important as it's always been, I think the, the split of our peak a couple of years ago, we were 50-50 delivery and 360, really? which I think for most people now, they, most directors are probably listening to that and be like, and think that's probably super high. But at the time it was operating like really, really well, especially when you get people that are, what for that to work, you need people to put a lot of jobs obviously right but as me and Zeth have sort of come away from the tools a little bit and and the market sort of softened a little bit then you know that balance has to probably be redressed a little bit we, 
which we've already done, it will still be a crucial component to the business. But I guess like, yeah, developing, like most people you said you were talking to, they only want people that can bring fees in. I think for us, we probably want most people to be able to do that. But there's still a place for people who aren't always, well, that's not naturally going to suit them as well. Mm. I think this is one of the reasons why we why it's been successful is that there's a home for those people. Maybe they don't want to go out there and do like the, the proper sort of hardcore BD stuff and, and everything else. Some people love that, some people don't. But for the people that don't, then, okay, is there still a role for them? Can they still be successful at Plexus and like yeah. have a good career and stuff? And like, yeah, they can, you know, so. Yeah, no, that's the, uh, the upside, isn't it? Because if yeah. you don't have something like that and you're like, I absolutely hate BD or I'm shit at it. Yeah you then you yeah you're a failure or there's nowhere else for you to go it works the other way around as well right because you get you and like i said you need people that are, are bd machines for sure you know probably the best recruiters do fall into that category the best 360 recruiters so and you want to be able to support that because probably those guys they don't really want to do loads and loads and loads of delivery and actually it's going to like eat into their time loads you know they go and pull mm. 10 jobs and they're like oh God, I forgot, I so, so let's just talk about that then because again clearly this is fundamental to you guys scaling and how you've got to this point let's on the flip side then when we say 360 obviously typically people would perceive that that they manage the whole process right but what it sounds like is they're mainly focused on just pulling jobs sales side so what are the expectations of these people who have a massive powerful resource in this delivery team what are your expectations of them are they mainly just focusing on yeah market mapping building their patch bringing on a jobs whatever like what are the expectations of the people that aren't in the delivery function because you're calling them 360 but it doesn't sound like they are yeah it's a good question I, I mean 360 should be able to do 360 obviously like as the name implies but yeah I guess the reality is that uh, certainly for the people that are higher up that so we want the I guess some of the most important people that we want to support at the moment is that that kind of middle management team right yeah. so if you're a if you're an early stage like billing manager you've been in a job for like two three four years you're learning the ropes you're probably managing like two three four people or something like that what you're going to find is that your biggest challenge is time management so to be able to support that then we try and give those guys the the more experienced delivery people and the most access to those delivery people right. to free up their time a little bit so those guys probably are i guess they they'll probably fall more into that like bd camp they'll probably be offloading a higher percentage of their jobs the more tra- the more trainee 360 people will probably be working more of those jobs themselves and certainly with the jobs within their own patch we don't like super strictly lock people into sort of certain patches but we do suggest and ask them to to focus on sort of certain areas so some people might do like front end or they might do ux or or whatever and really for jobs in their patch they should definitely definitely be working their own jobs really on 360 up to you know sort of management level stuff outside of their patch maybe there's more of an argument to pass those jobs over to delivery so that it doesn't detract from you know, they're mm. going off and speaking to different types of people and, and that sort of soaking up their time. That's really interesting, actually. That that makes sense because they're absolutely fundamental for you guys to grow. They're often the people that are the most time poor as, the, as you're putting more people underneath them. So if I'm in that seat, obviously, and I speak to these people all the time, one of the highest leverage activities they can do besides coaching their team and helping their team is winning business. And that could be for their team to work on a lot of the time. But what you're doing is helping these people by giving them, make sure they've got a really good resource and support from the delivery function. So they can still do that. And then there's a very high chance that they're still going to be able to be making the money that they were because they've got that resource. Yeah. And like when you talked earlier on about like, how are we supporting people who are in that position? Because like, I guess most recruitment directors fear is that at a point they're going to lose all their top performers and their top players and all all that sort of stuff. But I suppose for us, why I'm I'm not as concerned with that is because they've got an amazing opportunity. It's super supported by the delivery team. They're supported by us and and everything else. So they're spending time on like the sales side and then they've got more time then to coach 
to support the team because they're they're leveraging the the delivery team. Yeah, exactly. That's super interesting to be fair. Is there anything else then that's um, top of mind going into this next phase then? Because I'm sure you're thinking about it a lot. We've spoken a lot about, I think you've done a really good job of sharing some of the things you doubled down on to get to this point, the delivery function, how you approach growing the team. What's really top of mind? We've spoken about the non-billing stuff and, and those seats. But what else for you guys now is really top of mind to get to this this next phase? I think it's creating the infrastructure and the support structure for the business that we have in five years. Mm. So that is a lot of the stuff around like the training, internal hiring, marketing, operations, but also sales management. And so while we, we know that we're going to keep on hiring and we are super conscious of the amount of people that our sales managers are going to have to try and manage and stuff. And so how do we go about supporting them? Is it that I don't think it's necessarily a solution that Sean and I go back to individually managing sales managers, but Mm. do we start going to market to try and find other managers to try and support so there isn't a a big, uh, such a big time sponge for these people. Also, I think like looking at the second wave of people that we have in the business and, and how we can accelerate their route to management as well. The back office stuff, the marketing stuff and the talent stuff, I think are, stuff that we maybe traditionally neglected or we've done it, but we haven't done it early enough. Mm. And so basically building all of that stuff so that when we are X number of people in the future, we have all of the the function ready to support that. Mm. Obviously, this is all stuff that you wouldn't have a fucking clue about doing recruitment. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Still don't. Yeah. So like, how are you approaching that? Because like a lot of those things that you just very much like... I don't know, learning as you go, asking for help because, yeah. you know, you guys were top performers, great recruiters. Obviously, let's be honest, up until a certain point, you was pretty much that, but then leading the team, leading by the front, managing a lot of the stuff that you've probably become comfortable with. Obviously, Sean, I feel like you've got a bit more of the short scroll doing things, maybe more of the things out of your comfort zone on the op side compared to Zeph. But all those things you just said there, it's like proper business stuff, isn't it? It's not fucking doing deals and all that anymore, is it? So how how are you approaching that? Because there's a lot of things that you're you're not going to be good at to start with. Yeah. I, t- I tell you what it is, right? This is like we're generally both quite good at just discussing this sort of stuff and thinking, does that make sense? I don't think it makes sense. Don't do it. Or yeah, it makes sense. We'll do it. I think like I think we're not the amount of times like we've interviewed people that work in these other areas. Particularly if I'm interviewing an ops person, I'm sort of just going in there like, cool, what am I going to ask this person? I don't really know, <laughs> I don't really know what to ask him. Well, likewise, like, how do you interview a marketing yeah, person marketing, when yeah. you're not a marketer? Mm. Like, you can ask him, like, you know, what are your blind spots? What do you think you're really good at? What do you think you're really bad at? But, like, is that a good answer? Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I think, like, you have to just lean on other people. So, like, I think both of us speak to a lot of external people like mates of ours mm. and ask them what they think and how they're doing it we, like Sean said we brought in a, an interim CMO because we knew we needed to get marketing right because our market is global we need a global reach and mm. while you can have people like reaching out over the phone it's not going to be as strong as it is digitally but you know we just don't know what good looks like in a marketing person yeah they seem sound they seem like a cultural fit but are they a good marketer so i think just reaching out to people and just leaning on maybe experts in other fields and just being like help me out here. i've got no idea what i'm doing with mm. this what do you think have you not considered like an nd or strategic advisor at this stage yeah we have we have what's been what's been the vibes not not really enjoying who you're speaking uh, to not convinced. no 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 we've spoken to some some super smart people like they've sort of shared some some really really good advice i think it's like really hard to try and find the right sort of ned at the right time for you and understand 
it, what does this person's value right now versus in three years? Or what, what are the problems we're dealing with right now and who solves those problems right now? Because I think if you speak to any NED, they'll obviously say to you, yeah, I can help you right now. But actually, they're probably of more value two years ago or they're of more value right. three years from now. So just trying to sort of find the right NED for you for the problems that you think you have. But I'm sure they probably will tell you, you know, you have sort of other problems that you don't know about. <laughs> See, I'm being convinced. Yeah. yeah. It's not It's not that. We spoke to some great people. Um, and I'm sure at some point we will start to... I mean, the person that we have as an interim CMO is effectively an advisor. Yeah, basically. Mm. Yeah. yeah I think the that, that, likelihood is we probably look at something like that for finance as well. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And he's not a recruiter as well. That's Which probably you, a good thing. Yeah, it's just different perspective, isn't it? Mm. Mm. How are you both thinking about continuing to have a competitive advantage in this, um, in this marketplace then? I'm sure it's something that you think about, like, I, I can only imagine, although obviously it sounds like it's, it's a real difficult period and it has been for a while, but more and more recruitment companies are going to be entering the space. How do we feel about uh, continuing to have a competitive advantage or remaining to have a competitive advantage? How are you thinking about that? One of the things with crypto, right, is that naturally it attracts people who are like pretty sceptical, pretty cynical, you know, it's like the whole don't trust verify thing, like part of the technology, people kind of take that approach to, to kind of who they work with as well. So I think the advantage that we've got is because we were, you know, one of the first people in the space and we've been around for a, you know quite a while, I guess we've got a decent-ish moat because of that mm. you know it's not just like obviously the, you know, the candidate network and stuff like that is obviously helpful but i think the brand is pretty strong i think that helps a lot i think that there's a lot of tech recruiters out there who have like tried to do a little bit of crypto and you know i'm sure they'll like pick up a few jobs and stuff like that but i think if you you know the only way to do the space is to immerse yourself in it you gotta like you gotta live and breathe it every single day um mm. otherwise the people are just a bit they'll probably just be a bit skeptical of you so it's just continuing to leverage your... Just got to double down. Double down on... Uh, yeah, obviously, you, it, it's interesting, right? Because success often just comes to people that are willing to do the thing for a longer period of time. Because you're like, what, seven years in? Six six years, six. going in seven years. Mm. I, think just for, I think for a lot of people, crypto is just like the shiny new thing. That's right? what I mean. And they don't really understand it. And they're just like, oh, yeah, we should definitely do that. You know, let's have a, let's have a bit of a dabble in it. And it's like, you know, they might do a little bit of it, but they probably won't get anywhere. So I'm going to ask you where we want to be then before we finish and, and another three to five years time, whatever time horizon you've been thinking about. But I guess let's just end on, as we said in preparing for this, someone who's listened to this right now who is, yeah, at that 15 head mark, really is ambitious to get to that 30 head mark, uh, but is finding it difficult, maybe yo-yoing from 20 back to 18, back to 15, whatever. Sean, I'll come to you first. What's like the yeah the one bit of advice or the two bits of advice that's top of mind for you to help that founder entrepreneur who's just really struggling to scale past that 15 to 20 head mark? you got to think longer term than you're perhaps thinking. I think a, a lot of the time, like, especially when you're setting a business up, people are just going to want to try and deal with the problems in front of their face a lot of the time. And they're mm. probably thinking about, you know, like what, how are we going to do deals next month and what's our pipeline like for the next three months and stuff like that. But actually, you've got to think where do I want to be in like maybe two-ish years, something like that. People talk about five-year plans and I think like that's most of those are just bullshit, just dreams basically. Like if you're talking about a, an actual strategy, an actual plan, you know, try and forecast forward maybe a year or two or something like that. Think about and then think about what you need to get there now and build build the infrastructure for that now. Yeah, nice. So take a step back and expand the, try and do your best to expand how far ahead you're looking. Nice. Yeah. Seth, what you got for us, mate? I think, like, be comfortable with who you are and, like, have a vision for what you want to be and make sure people feel part of that. So it's not a, 
this is what I want to do. This mm. is what we want to do. And this is why I think we should do it. And I would also say probably just because it's an error that we made, like get comfortable with empowering people in your business because the more you empower people, the more they will be loyal because they feel like they are more part of it than just another person in that company. Probably those two things. Nice. I think what you're saying about like be proud of like doing it in a certain way, that's been absolutely massive for us. Like there's a million different ways to do recruitment. There's lots of different types of companies and different areas of like, recruitment or whatever. And they do things in different ways and they have different structures and they're set up in different ways and whatever. Like for us, it was like, this is how we do it. It works really well. If you don't like it, that's cool. Don't worry about it. We're not going to change. We're going to stick our flag in this hill and it's, it kind of works for us. And actually, ha- and that just, it, that internal kind of branding has worked really, really effectively for us. Mm. So I would say do that. Find out who you are and just like stick to it, basically. So next three years then, where are we going to be? Let's end on that. Three years. This uh, is where you come out with outrageous statements. And next then, three years. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to be, what's the GP goal next three years? I'd like to get to eight figures. Mm. I think that's definitely achievable. We're moving into this office in the summer, which will hold maybe 90, maybe 100 people, something like that, which is, mm. you know, pretty cool, stroke terrifying at the same time. <laughs> yeah. um, we really want to do the US. It's been on the sort of long-term radar for a while and and uh, we've got the visas and stuff to do that. And, and hopefully next year we'll, we'll get that off the ground. So I think if we can do that, then make that work and mm. you know, make the UK operation tick over like it has, then yeah, I think definitely like eight figures GP is, is on the table for sure. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, 100%. The stuff in the States, we have to do it. Like, we've got, like, a visa, we're ready to go, I think. And I think maybe not even just the States. I'd maybe like to at least be starting to plan maybe other places, other locations. So it's dictated by the people we've got. Like, if someone says to me, yeah, I want to go and do this, and this is what I want to do, then we start building a plan for that. Boy, it's been a pleasure. Yes, yeah, it's Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope there were plenty of golden nuggets for you to take away. As you'll know, I'm your host here of the Recruitment Mentors podcast, but I'm also the founder of Recruitment Mentors. We're a online subscription-based learning and education platform. We're on a mission to help thousands of recruiters achieve their professional goals and successfully progress their careers through modern and engaging online learning. If you're a recruitment business owner listening to this, there's a good chance that you value self-development, personal development. You're trying to develop a culture of continuous improvement. But we've partnered with a number of grown recruitment companies who were struggling to understand how they can invest more in their people, how they can upskill them more quickly without spending more time, without having to spend thousands of pounds of external trainers. And we've ended up being a really great fit, modern fit for recruitment teams. We can ultimately help you get more out of your teams by giving your people access to modern and engaging online learning, which they can access on demand. The thing that's really cool about what we're doing at Recruitment Mentors is that all of the people that your teams are able to learn from and the people that are delivering the learning content are people that are in role right now. They're billing, they're actively facing the challenges that your teams are, and a lot of the time they're amongst the top performers within their companies, which means your teams are going to be way more confident to learn and spend time on their learning when they know they're learning from people that are doing it right now, have been there and done it. There's nothing worse than feeling like training is not relevant and not current. The best place to find out more about Recruitment Mentors and if we can help you accelerate your team's performance is uh, send me a message on LinkedIn, connect with me on LinkedIn directly, and I'd love to connect with you and, and find out if we can help you get more out of your people.